John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Uh, We have been studying through the book of Exodus just over a year now. Uh, But two weeks ago when we were in the text on, uh, we're in the middle of the Decalogue, uh, on adultery, um, I cited John 8 and the woman caught in adultery which led me to read chapter 7, 8, and 9, and for days on end, reading chapter 7, 8, and 9. And when I got to this text, I said, oh, man, I have to preach this text. <laughs> Therefore, we're going to look at John 9, verses 1 through 11 this morning. We'll get back to Exodus next Lord's Day. You know, it's been asked if, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, Does it make a noise? The obvious answer is that there are sound waves, regardless if one is there or not. But if there is no one there to pick up and interpret those sound waves, waves, no one will hear it as noise. It must be a receiver. So if a set of ears are lacking the sound waves cannot then be interpreted. Pretty simple. The same is true of light. The lack of sight does not mean that light is lacking or absent. Physical light reveals the condition of the eye. It either sees or it doesn't see. There's sight or sightlessness. There's vision or blindness. The Bible uses the metaphor of blindness time and time again for those who've never perceived the truth of Christ. Jesus, the light of the world, reveals the condition of every man or woman's soul. I'm not talking about the hippy-dippy, made-up Jesus of the unbelieving surfer dude. I'm not talking about the Jesus is my homeboy Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus of Scripture. He reveals the condition of every man or woman's soul. The one true way to the Father. 
So, before we look at the details of this narrative in John chapter 9, we must first understand its connection to chapters 7 and 8. When an aggressive conflict between Jesus and the Sanhedrin ignite, the religious leaders of the day, while he, our Lord, taught in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. If you notice there in chapter 7, just turn back to chapter 7 and verse 14. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three major feasts of Israel. There was Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was a memorial to Israel's wandering in the wilderness, where water was often in short supply. Now, you're all well aware of this. It's been, we've been working our way through the Exodus. So they would commemorate those times as the people would gather together in Jerusalem, and they would camp out for seven days in little, little huts to recall their ancestors' living quarters prior to possessing the land of Canaan. And the last day of that feast was also referred to as the greatest day, uh, not only because it was at the end, but it also marked the end of the whole rotation um, of the festival year. So during this celebration, a, a tradition had grown where on those seven days of this feast, the priests would carry to the temple in procession water taken from the pool of Salome. So they would take this empty golden vessel and in procession march down to the pool, fill it up, and they would mark back, march back to the temple and they would enter in underneath the outstretched arms of the people holding extended uh, you know, palm or willow branches as the people would recite Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they'd finally pour out the water on the altar, calling to memory the great provision that Yahweh made for their ancestors as they marched through the wilderness, providing water from a rock. Notice chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, as you know, the Apostle Paul took this same image and applied it to our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he writes, For they, that is Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Amen is right. I got two amen, amen. So, in context, it's not difficult to see why there was such an uproar why there was such division and a call for our Lord's arrest as recorded in chapter 7, verses 40 to 52. Now, also, 
during the Feast of Booths, every night there was four huge torches that were lit. It was known as the Great Candelabra. And history records that these torches were as high as the walls of the temple. And they illumined the city of Jerusalem. So same time frame, same celebration. These torches symbolized the Shekinah glory. The radiance and in, in the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. So on that last night, imagine when the torches of the candelabra were extinguished, having lit up the sky for seven nights, here on the last day, the great day, picture these things, these these charred torches in the background, and then look at chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Christ is saying, in effect, you know that pillar that came between your forefathers and the Egyptians near the Red Sea, the pillar of protection that led them through the wilderness? I am that light. I am that light. I am the light of the world. I am identified with Shekinah glory. Not only for you Jews, but also for the nations of the world. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You, beloved brothers and sisters, are recipients of that glorious promise. Today, right here, right now. So the meaning was clear. He was the light. And his hyper-religious enemies, Jesus said, were in spiritual darkness. Dead. So this is an aggressive attack against the religious leaders of the day. I mean, these are fighting words. Okay, Notice this now. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. I'm going away. He's talking to the religious leaders. I'm going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, the Lord didn't stop there. Look at verse 23. You're from below. I'm from above. Verse 24. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then from verse 37 to the end of chapter 8... Jesus goes on to destroy the false faith and empty securities of Israel's tradition and religious lineage. Now, Abraham was the ultimate figure of humanity in the mind of a Jew. In verse 39, notice chapter 8, Abraham is our father, they say. Verse 44, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your father's the devil. And your will is to do the desire of your father. Imagine that. Your daddy's the devil. Religious leaders. Now, if that weren't enough, verse 58, he goes on to say, Before Abraham ever was born, I am. Identifying himself with Yahweh. God who spoke. 
to Moses through the burning bush. Who shall I say, Lord, has sent me? I am that I am. So uh, the response of those Jews to, to Christ's ultimate claim of deity, that is an ultimate claim to deity, I am, their response? Murder. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why is that? Because it was not yet his time. It was not yet his hour. That's why. They tried to do this many times. It was not yet his hour. Who's in control of his death? He was. He was. You know, in the upper room that night, he he said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And at that point, Satan entered him, and then he went out of the room. He had to go. And he, 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 he controlled the time of his arrest. He controlled the time of his crucifixion. Not man. So they pick up stones. And who is it that picks up the stones, beloved? Those who supposedly knew the most. The scholars of the day. The scribes of the day. Students of scripture. To whom Jesus said, you're blind. And in another gospel account, Matthew 15, he referred to them as blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. There's a lot of blind guides today leading a lot of blind people as they teach about another Jesus, not this one. And they'll end up in the pit unless God in his grace delivers them through the true gospel. So, that unforgettable scene of light and darkness propels us now into chapter 9. Where we witness an intentional, mindful description on part of this inspired writer, the Apostle John, of what happens when light goes out into the world. And notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, he's blind. Congenital blindness. He's never seen a thing a day in his life. Our Lord exits the scene of chapter 8, and here he encounters a man who's never known light. So with his disciples in tow, as Jesus beholds this man, imagine Jesus looking at this man, and the disciples looking at the man, and then looking at Jesus behold him, and they raise a question about sin and suffering. Curious as they are about the providential reason for this man's affliction, assuming, as did most Jews of the day, that sin and suffering are immediately connected. They were trapped. Most Jews of that day were trapped in the dilemma of the, of the, uh, the either-or fallacy. Someone had to sin for him to be born in this condition. So they were under the assumption that, that, that either the sin of this man or the sin of his parents was to blame for his blindness. A presupposition based on the idea that pain and affliction is divine punishment for sin across the board. Is that not what we see expressed in the book of Job? 
right? Job's friends. Friends. Don't be a friend like that. So in the midst of Job's suffering, you know, they conclude because his affliction is the worst in all the land, naturally he's the greatest sinner in all the land. And God is punishing him. But the book of Job was actually written to refute that fallacy. And it shows us that Job's suffering had nothing to do with sin on his part. Now, we, we, we hopefully know that, that blindness and all other bodily afflictions is one of the ultimate effects of sin. It is a result of the fall. This we know, amen? It is a result of the fall. Because sin brought about disease. Sin uh, brought universal deterioration and death for which we will all face. Though in Christ you'll never taste it. You just move from this body into his presence because he conquered sin and death. Amen? So even although all sin is remotely related to sin in the fall of Adam, not all disease and sickness is always directly related to personal sin. Okay? May we know the difference. So sickness and even death however, certainly can be related to personal sin. After all, David and Bathsheba, after they sinned, God judged them by what? Taking the baby, the death of the child. Moses' sister, Miriam, who protested against Moses' marriage, who protested against his leadership, very stupid thing to do. The scripture says God visited her with leprosy consequence of her personal sin. We read about the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Lying to the Holy Spirit. Boom, they drop dead. Judgment. You, you, you read about that painful death of Herod in Acts 12. Members of the church of Corinth, many of them were sick, some of them unto death, is God's judgment for sin in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? So we have to have a balanced view. However, practically speaking, beloved, it is almost always wrong, insensitive, and theologically stupid, capital S, to say that those suffering illness or those facing death, that it is either, number one, due to some secret sin they haven't confessed, it has to be that, or they're not healed or made well because of inadequate faith on their part. That's nonsense. God may have other reasons for allowing his own beloved people to suffer illness and sorrow. And here Jesus quickly, if you notice, rejects both alternatives. And notice what he says in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man would be healed to see, beloved, and proclaim the glory of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's plan for his life from eternity. Glorious, mighty, this sovereign, omnipotent God who works providentially throughout time. Verse 4, Jesus goes on, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Notice this expression, while it is day, verse 4. It's explained in verse 5. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. That's the day. Referring to the brief time that Jesus will physically be with his disciples. And then the night refers to his coming death, his impending death that will take him away from his disciples. So in essence, Jesus was saying, fellas, this is not about a theological debate on sin and suffering. That's a profitless discussion. So he goes on, and what he's doing is he's teaching them about the work and the will of his Father. What we must do, we must do now. So what Jesus is really teaching his disciples here is ministry as led by the Holy Spirit. What do we read? Here's what we read about Jesus. Just, this is just in the Gospel of Luke. Our Lord's entire life ministry was according to the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. His birth, the scripture tells us, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He grew, the scripture says, and became strong in spirit, filled with all wisdom, always about his father's business. Luke chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him at his baptism. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. Jesus returned from there in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then in the synagogue, of course, in Nazareth, Jesus, from the prophet Isaiah, declares, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then he talks about being, having fulfilled Scripture in their sight. And then they they wanted to stone him again. He declares here, all that he would do in his ministry would be by the power of the Spirit. Now, beloved brothers and sisters, Christians, dear brothers, sisters, as Christians, if you attempt to operate independently, outside of the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will exist blindly. So providentially, you'll miss the hand of God in many things. And you'll pass, you'll pass by a blind man sitting in a gate. And instead of understanding God's providential hand, you'll try to figure out why he was born blind, figuratively speaking. Right? We'll just pass by, numb and dumb, rather than led by the Spirit. So we have to be attentive to the Spirit. To be attentive to the Spirit, we, we, we have to take in His Word. Pray. Confess. Repent continually. Walking in fellowship with the Most High. Led by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says in verse 4 to His disciples, There's a blind man here who needs to see physically for certain. But more important than him seeing physically is that he needs to see spiritually. This is what's at hand here. And our time is limited, gentlemen, says Jesus. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, beloved, although that light shone most clearly and brightly during his earthly ministry, that light was carried on through his disciples. And these very same men who were asking this question, they would go on 
to make the most of their time as regards the gospel. And because they did, we are here as recipients throughout the generations of this glorious message. So all Christians to this very day, those of us here in this room included, we must serve with a sense of urgency. Amen? We, we must serve with a sense of urgency, making the most of our time. Just a couple principles of application. Notice verse 6. Having said all these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Salome, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. From the same pool of water that the priests would fill the golden vessel during the Feast of Tabernacles, the pool of Salome, which was regarded as sacred in Jerusalem, he sends this man to that pool and instructs him to go wash after he makes mud out of his spit, out of his spittle. Go. Wash. Someone had to lead the man down there. Perhaps he felt his way. Imagine, never having seen a thing in your life, he goes, he washes, and the first thing he's going to see is water. And then perhaps second thing, the second thing is his own reflection. Imagine this. Okay, you have to grasp this, man. He's never seen a thing. Ever. He washes, it's water. Perhaps his reflection, he looks up, he sees faces of people that are perplexed. He looks up, there's sky, there's trees. What a day. (laughs) What a miracle. This is why this text said, preach me. You know the great Charles Spurgeon? Prince of Preachers? He didn't know what he was going to preach till Saturday night. Now, only he could get away with that thing, that type of thing. He said, you know, what text do you preach from? Whatever one speaks the loudest, preach me. I wish I were that gifted, but I'm not, so you have to deal with it. (laughs) Now, in order uh, to find out more about congenital blindness, I did some research a few years ago. I'm going to share it with you this morning. Having never seen anything ever, this man, understand, would not be capable of receiving all this visual information. He would have no way to know that this was a music stand that he could now see. So there had to be healing in his brain as well. His mind could not register all this information, beloved. Oliver Sacks, professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, writes about a man named Virgil. A 50-year-old man, blind from childhood, whose sight was restored in 1991 after a new lens was implanted in one eye. And Sachs writes, quote, When the bandages were removed, Virgil could see, but he had no idea what he was seeing. Light, movement, and color were all mixed up and meaningless. All were just a blur. His brain could make no sense of the images that his optic nerve was transmitting. 
Although he now had eyesight, he was still mentally blind. A condition of perceptual incapacity known medically as agnosia. I wish our eye doctor were here with us today. I'd like to ask him some questions. Virgil could not distinguish words on a board, even though he could read Braille fluently, as well as raised or inscribed letters. He could easily read the inscribed letters on tombstones by touch. A cat, however, was particularly puzzling, as he could see parts clearly, a paw, the nose, the tail, but the cat as a whole was only a blur, as were human faces, end quote. Now, let's pause for a moment. In the Gospel of Mark, there's another gracious, glorious account of Jesus healing a blind man. And here he performed it in a two-step process. Now look at this in Mark 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Back to Oliver's book. A few days after his operation, Virgil said, trees didn't look like anything. But a month later, he finally put a tree together and realized that the trunk and the leaves formed a complete unit. Okay, now he goes on regarding some um, clinical aspects of agnosia. Quote, people who who have formerly been used to a world they accessed only by touch, hearing, taste, and smell tend to be baffled by appearance, which, being optical, has no correlation in the other senses. People who have been totally blind from birth, congenital blindness, or early childhood have lived in a world of time alone, not time and space. Thus, the step at the end of the porch is something which offers, which occurs for a blind person a short time after he leaves the doorway rather than something he's aware of in space. Now, Sachs goes on and he quotes an autobiography of a blind man who says that for the blind, people are there only when they speak. They come and they go out of nothing. Imagine yourself like this. Now, Sachs goes on to say that these sort of difficulties are almost universal among the early blinded restored to sight. And he mentions a patient who could not recognize individual faces a year after his eye operation, despite his then having perfectly normal elementary vision. For such case histories, it appears that when sight is suddenly restored, there is the need for the development of some new pathways in the visual cortex of the brain. End quote. So the story of the blind man there in Mark 8, who saw people, as trees walking, is today clinically described as agnosia. Like Virgil, this blind man could see, but the additional complication here of agnosia, he could not make sense of what he was seeing. So Jesus lays his hands on him again and heals his agnosia. 
This is amazing. So in one miraculous instant, his brain was taught what the rest of us have learned from childhood. It's amazing. Now, to conclude the clinical article, quote, sighted babies learn to master all this as time goes by. An achievement, it should be noted, which is beyond the capacity of even our largest supercomputers. Yeah, you came from an ape, huh? You have to be an idiot to believe that. People who become blind later in life have built up a visual memory of the way things look and how they fit together in space. However, for the newly sighted, it is a huge learning task involving a radical change in both neurological and psychological functioning, a change in the perceptual habits and strategies of a lifetime. End quote. Wow. This miracle of healing in John 9 would have involved restoring or creating or recreating eye structures as well as creating new nerve pathways and connections to the brain. This is amazing. You know, there are no miracles of restored sight in the Old Testament. Zero. It is presented in the Bible as a special activity of Messiah and was Jesus' most frequent miracle. Isaiah 35 said, Then when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, physically and spiritually. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Back to the account. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No way. He just looks like him. But he kept saying continually, It is me. I'm the man. That was my post, man. I'm the guy. So this man given sight to see, notice, he has no desire to return to his begging post. Amen? When Christ invades your life and he gives you sight to see, you don't want to go back to the nonsense you were involved in before because now you see. Amen? You leave that life. When you see spiritually, you leave that life. In the darkness, because light has come to you, so now you come out into the light. Where else would you want to go to testify other than home? To home. Notice he arrives, all these instances of they said, some said, others said. This man's previous condition and and his obvious appearance was considerably different. That's why they didn't recognize him. There were no need for guarded habits in his walking. He probably normally walked home like this, head down, turned to the side so he could hear the echoing sounds off of buildings, touching his way, feeling his way home. That's how they recognized him. That was his body language. 
shuffling his feet ever so cautiously. Now the brother must be leaping, jumping, proclaiming, it's me, I can see. So he walks home unguarded to share this miraculous healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he arrives by reason of his new body language, and he is unrecognizable. Can't be him. You know, miracles in John's gospel, beloved, are always signs meant to teach deep spiritual truths. There's a lesson here. This reaction of these people is reminiscent, beloved, of anyone who's been truly apprehended by Jesus Christ. Sometimes unrecognizable. The new identity one inherits from Jesus Christ upon conversion is noticeable to the unconverted. It should be. He's almost unrecognizable to his family, these people closest to him, friends, neighbors. You know, beloved, I do not believe, personally, I do not believe it is possible that one is truly converted, transformed from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, that you can go on and nobody notices a change. I don't believe it's possible. If there's no evidence of change, something's wrong. And you may be deceived because you said this prayer. If a person is born again, as Jesus said, you have to see that they've been born again. Now, what about children who come to faith at a young age in a family? Well, hopefully you're not going to see a drastic change. Right, My hope for my grandson, who I spent last week with, who's two and a half, my prayer is that the first time he hears the gospel, clearly he'll receive Jesus Christ and follow him for the rest of his life. So there won't be any drastic change. However, as he moves through the stages of life, there will indeed be signs of fruit of the Spirit in his life. Amen? And he will be recognizably ever-growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me assure you, beloved. The transformation of the heart, of the mind, of the will of fallen men and women is no less miraculous than this man born blind receiving his sight. No less miraculous. Because our, our condition is also congenital. It's innate. Spiritual blindness is inborn. It's hereditary. It must be overturned. It must miraculously be transformed. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again from above. You must, or you'll never see the kingdom. And let me assure you of this. You have as much to do with that spiritual birth as you did with your physical birth. You know what you had to do with your physical birth? Nothing. Nothing. The spiritual birth is the same. You have nothing to do with it. It is the sole sovereign work of Almighty God who gives sight to the blind. This you could lift your hands up and say, Glory to God Almighty. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. The reason I wanted to preach this is because I was driving with my wife and I'm looking around at the world, and I'm listening to the world, and I'm listening to the philosophy of the world, and I'm listening to commentary on news from the world, and I say, honey, 
I'm amazed that I see. I'm amazed, I'm blown away that the Lord has granted me grace to see the truth. For I would be just like anyone else. It's all grace. I didn't do anything to to earn this. You know, when I came to faith in Christ, I grew up in the church. I grew up with sound doctrine. But I was not a recipient of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit until I was in my 20s. And the Lord started to work on me and and pricked my heart and drove me to the scriptures. And the the first book I wanted to read through, don't know why, was Jeremiah. (laughs) And, man, looming judgment. And this prophet who who was unrelenting and and proclaiming the truth. Well, a friend of mine who I used to run around with in San Diego moved out of state. And he had been gone about a year and a half. And he came back. And he's sitting at my kitchen table staring at me. He goes, what's wrong with you? I said, what do you mean what's wrong with me? He goes, what's happened to you? You're so different. Are you okay? And all I could, I didn't even know what was going on. All I could answer was, man, dude. (laughs) I think I spoke like that. It still comes out now and again. Man, dude, I've been reading the Bible for a year and I, I don't know. And his eyes were like this. He was afraid. I mean, I didn't even know how to articulate the redemptive historical purposes of God fulfilled in Christ yet. And he hasn't spoke to me since, once I did learn how to do that. (laughs) When a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins has been quickened by way of the newness of life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he literally is a new creature. Look at the Apostle Paul said. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's an undeniable change that takes place when God grants spiritual life no different than this blind man who received physical sight. It's that dramatic. Remember when Paul was met by Christ? Was he seeking Jesus? Huh? Was Paul seeking Jesus? He's a seeker. Let's have a seeker-sensitive church because there's a lot. No one seeks after God, the scripture says. No one. But I certainly did at one point. That's only because he was seeking you out and he determined to find you. And when he did, your desire was now turned towards him. The only true seekers of God are those who are in Christ. You're seekers. That's why you're here today. Because you've been found by God in Christ. Amen? Amen? When Paul was struck blind, having been met by the risen Christ, immediately, Acts 9, he proclaimed, this is after he was given his sight back, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. It's that simple. He is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, wait a minute, cowboy. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon this name that he's now proclaiming? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Yeah, that's why he went, to arrest them. All those in Christ, now he's in Christ, and he's preaching Christ. He's been transformed. He's a new creature. Okay, back to the account. After much dispute here between the neighbors, the cured man 
ends the controversy by proclaiming over and over again, I am he, it is me, it's me. This is what's so perplexing as regards regeneration. The individual still the same person. Okay, when my friend met me, I'm, I was still the same purpose, person, but a new principle and element have come into my life. It's called the living God. <laughs> Amen? Amen? The living God. Christ Jesus. And then this kind of transformation now oftentimes will initiate extensive examination. Notice in the account. Notice this eager inquiry in verse 10. So they said to him, well, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus. That name, huh? Just something about that name. The man named Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. There was no longer any doubt as regards this man's identity. Beloved, how people, oh, how people desire to know the peace the tranquility, and the assurance that you have been gifted with, that in the midst of your... Look, you have difficulty like everybody else, ain't it? Our problems are no different. It's just that we've been granted a peace of God in the midst of them because we have peace with God. All others, the scripture says, are at enmity with him. We're no longer at enmity with God. Therefore, people want to know, how did you do this? I didn't do anything. God in his grace through his son Jesus Christ did this. So an unregenerate sinner is incapable of grasping the divine work of God in the new believer's life. Not unlike this man here. All he said was this, look, Jesus, this Jesus, he made mud. He wiped it in my eyes. He told me to go wash. I went, I washed, now I see. I once was blind, now I see. Beautiful, amen? It's glorious, beautiful. Now, to wrap this up, Jesus takes this account. He lifts it above the commonplace. He takes this and he makes a spiritual metaphor for those he came to give sight, light, and life to. Okay? Beautiful. This isn't, you want to, spiritualizing the text. Jesus spiritualizes the text. Okay? This is the greatest illustration of spiritual blindness in the Bible. And Jesus himself applies this healing as an illustration described at the end of the chapter. Okay? Now, a lot of things happen. We don't have time to look at this. Once they realize it's him, they bring the man to the Pharisees. The Pharisees examine the man. They said, who did this? He says, his name's Jesus. Oh, he's a sinner. He broke the Sabbath. He healed you on the Sabbath. This man's not from God. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? So there's a division. Jesus always causes division. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to divide, even families. So, they bring in the parents of this young man. Is this your son? That's our son. Was he born blind? He was born blind. Who did this? Ah, we don't know. The scripture says they were afraid to testify about Jesus because the Pharisees had put out this edict that anyone who confesses Jesus will be put out of the synagogue. 
And to be cut off from the synagogue is to be cut off from community and any kind of assistance that you could ever receive. You're put out. So they feared that. They were men pleasers. And they said, you know, uh, he's of age. Why don't you just ask him? And he said, Jesus did it. And they put him out. They put him out. Jesus catches up with the young lad, however old he is. Having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is it, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. I believe. And he worshipped him. When you're brought from darkness into the light, you become a worshiper. A worshiper. Now take note of verses 38 to 41. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Did you get that? Don't miss this, beloved. Wake up if you're nodding off. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we all so blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You want to believe Jesus is one of many ways? You're blind. You think you see? You're blind. You want to believe that all roads lead to God? You're blind. That's the broad road, Jesus said, that leads to destruction. You're blind. You want to believe that Jesus is the hippie Jesus who doesn't judge? You're blind. All judgment's been delegated to him by the Father. The most bloodiest picture of judgment in all of the Bible is in Revelation when Jesus comes back. So this chapter, beloved, portrays what happens when light shines. Some are made to see, like this man, while others who think they see turn away and are blinded by the light. Blinded by the light. All you rock and roll people know that song. So the story ends with those who thought they could see and are therefore then confirmed in their blindness in contrast with the one who was truly blind who's been given eyes to see and who now appreciates and understands who Jesus is, the result of which, verse 38, is worship. Yeah. Beautiful. This is a picture of the gospel. This is how the gospel works. It's like the sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. Amen? That's what the gospel does. Don't trip out when you share the loving gospel with someone and they they end up infuriated. Just remember, it's not up to you to convert them. Just plant the seed, water it, just move on, give them a hug, move on. If they start swinging... Bob and weave. I can teach you how to bob and weave. (laughs) Now, it's interesting to close. There's no name mentioned regarding this man. You know, you think John might have slipped in, you know, this is Pete from down the street, or this is Nate who used to beg at the gate. No name. (laughs) No name. 
And perhaps John, the inspired writer, is saying, you don't need to know his name. Christian, insert your name. Insert your name. Because this is every Christian man and woman's experience, spiritually speaking. You were born blind. You were born in darkness. You've been given the light of the world. You've been given light to see. So we need this invasive touch of Jesus Christ, right? I've told you before that preaching you've heard that Jesus is a gentleman. He taps on the door. He's no gentleman tapping on the door. What does he do with that door? He kicks that door in to save sinners like you and me. Amen? Context of that knocking on the door is to the church, by the way. It needs to wake up. The the whole church. That's what I'm talking about. So insert your name. He enables us to see. And when we open our eyes, when they're open by the grace of God, we worship God, what do we see? Not only the light of day, but we see the light of the world as we've never seen before. I was taught the light of the world. I was taught about the light of the world through childhood, but I, was, I remained blind until that day, until that day when I was given sight to see. And what do I see? John 1.14, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, there's only one, from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Truth. Grace and truth. So all those whose spiritual eyes have been opened may say the same. John 1.14. Question. Are you one of them? Has God in his grace met you and opened your eyes to see and moved you from the category of darkness to light? Are you among them? Can you say amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If not, he's the one you call on. And you call on him now. Today is the day of salvation. Christians, rejoice, having been given sight to see and worship this king. Amen?